Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. On today's episode, I talk with someone who is likely known to listeners, in large part because she's been a strong leader in our state at a time when leadership has been sorely lacking. State Representative and Minority Leader Allison Russo has led the way in ensuring that redistricting is carried out democratically, that is, in a way that actually reflects the will of Ohioans. As Leader Russo explains in our discussion, Ohioans are actually quite moderate on matters of health and healthcare, but you wouldn't know that if you only knew about some of the extreme policies being pushed by the majority in the State House. The thing that really gets me about all of this is that because of these leadership failures, we're actually less ready for the next public health challenge than we were for this one. This, in my view, is a huge misopportunity and a symptom of a failure of government to do one of its most basic jobs, that is, to protect people and promote health. Lita Russo also has a deep background in public health, which positions her well to speak about whether our state has learned anything from our experience with COVID-19. As you'll see from our conversation, there's a lot of reason to be pessimistic about public health in Ohio, but Lita Russo understands that we need to keep pushing. I won't take up too much of your time with logistics today, but please subscribe to the show, visit Prognosis Ohio to check out our extensive show notes for today's episode, and also you can listen to past episodes there. We'd of course welcome your feedback and your show ideas, as well as your support through Patreon, which you can also find on our website. Okay, now to my conversation with leader Allison Russo. Leader Allison Russo, thanks so much for being back on the show. Thank you for having me. So people often ask me what what I think we've learned from COVID-19, and I have to confess that my answer is often kind of depressing. I I worry that a lot of the lessons that I hoped in those initial months we were going to learn, we didn't learn, and I don't really feel that our public health focus is any stronger than than it was beforehand, which is which is unfortunate because it's a real missed opportunity out of tragedy. Um, in those early months of 2020, Ohio was in the national headlines. Dr. Acton was a, was a household name. And even Governor DeWine, even from the Democrats, they were giving him a lot of credit for that initial response. So I just want to put it to you. What do you think happened from that initial moment to where we are today? Well, I think what we saw happen from the initial response, which was very reasoned, it was certainly following the science. You know, as you mentioned, Dr. Acton was getting certainly a lot of praise, not only here in Ohio, but also across the country, was, I think, these elements that have been in existence for a long time before the pandemic, and that is a real distrust, sometimes earned distrust in government, a distrust in authority. And I think that combined with what we were looking at with the pandemic, this was a brand new virus and science by its nature. And I think those of us who come with science and research backgrounds understand this, that you are continually learning Things are changing. You're adjusting as you learn new information. And we were essentially doing that in real time at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, As someone said, I remember being in a meeting at the very beginning with some public health experts and researchers, and they said, you know, remember, we just met this virus a few weeks ago. And so as we were learning more about the virus, of course, recommendations were changing. And I think that that nature, the nature of what was happening um, 
was it just fed into the distrust that already existed. And and pretty early on, within a month of the initial orders, we began to see protest at the state house. Um, and, you know, protests, frankly, from some groups that we had always seen at the state house who were distrustful of government and uh, more rules from government. And they all sort of coalesced around this issue. And I think that the governor began to feel that pressure. I mean, by the time uh, we returned back to the General Assembly in August and September, we had members across the aisle who were already demanding that he be brought up on criminal charges, right. that he be impeached. Uh, so there was a tremendous amount of political pressure that he was feeling within his own party, but also you know, from portions of the public that were part of uh, the base that was important to him. Even basic public health practices at the time that were, you know, you're right that we we didn't know exactly what was going on with this particular disease. And we were learning even on this podcast, on this show, you know, if I listen back to some of those early episodes, we were growing. We were trying to figure out what what was this. And I was even talking to public health officials who were saying, well, get your flu shot, make sure we're, you know, staying focused on core things. And then we get to the the real politicization of it, which is, I think at the beginning, the governor got a lot of credit because it seemed like there was a focus on public health instead of these different kinds of politics. So the politics kind of came in over time. Is is that That's an right. accurate way to think of it? I would say that that is accurate. And listen, you know, one of the weaknesses that we have had in public health, and, and I say this as someone who came from a background in public health, is we need to be better at communicating. And that has always been an issue that we have struggled with is how do we best communicate to the public? But, you know, you combine that with, again, we were in this time of a new virus in a pandemic and building again on this distrust that has been building, I think, in our politics for years. It was the perfect storm to create some of the fallout that we saw later on. And, you know, I do firmly believe that the the governor began to feel that pressure very acutely. And at the end of the day, you know, he is, was also thinking about, I have to get reelected and I want to be reelected. And uh, we began to see those shifts. Distrust itself, though, is corrosive in other ways. I mean, aside from this pandemic and that we're still in, um, and even looking at a, a, a crest now coming potentially this this fall and this winter, distrust can can affect other aspects of health and, and public health. So, in what ways do you see this kind of phenomenon becoming a problem or a challenge more broadly, even beyond the pandemic? Well, that's a great question. You know, I think. We certainly see it now in the carryover that we see and the trust, for example, in the value of vaccinations. Uh, You know, I worry most acutely in this space about what this impact will be on childhood vaccinations for all of these 
uh, viruses that we have long been very good at preventing with vaccines. And and we're starting to see uh, reductions, for example, in the vaccination rates for children. I think, you know, we see it even in the delivery of care. And how do we perpetuate the disparities that have existed for a long time? And much of that is also because of distrust between patients and providers. Um, And, you know, when we talk about public health and and public health interventions, it's important to realize public health is not just about infectious diseases. It is also about how do we address chronic diseases? How do we address environmental concerns? Um, So, you know, the implications of this and, and being able to rebuild the trust in public health is something that we, I believe, need to be very intentional about moving forward. We really have a coming crisis in in Ohio, and I talked to folks at the Children's Hospital. I remember you know, my my son, who's seven, coming out with his COVID vaccination, and they had given all the kids these capes. I mean, they did such right. a fast, you know, fantastic job just celebrating. And you know, I had tears in my eyes watching this happen, watching all these kids come flying out of this hospital. And then you look at the other side of it, which is just the fear around vaccination and and this this dialing back of progress that we had actually made even in 2019 before the pandemic. And now we have kids in school or who are absent from school who can't go to school. We don't really know what's going on with even basic childhood vaccinations anymore. Do you think that this is in part an effect of this generalized distrust that is actually one of the unfortunate lessons that we 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 get from the covid experience? I think it is. Uh, and again, you know, we started talking about the hope of investing in public health and investing in public health infrastructure and maybe there would be some progress there. I almost feel as if we've gone backwards even further than where we started before the pandemic. Uh, So we have a lot of work to do. I think not only does it start with rebuilding the trust with the public, but frankly, it also starts with some leadership from the top, you know, serving in the General Assembly, sitting on, for example, the House Health Committee, going through the budget discussions, hearing some of the conversations around how do we get money back into uh, our public health system, how do we get money directed towards, you know, some of these population health issues that Ohioans are dealing with, a real reluctance yeah. there, um, which is alarming yeah. because we started in not a great place from a health perspective before the pandemic. And I feel that in many cases, many of these issues that we've dealt with, addiction, mental health, smoking, infant mortality, maternal mortality, those are all things that will continue to get worse if we don't put the resources and we don't put the priority back into How do we build a public health infrastructure? How do we build prevention and real population health? But you're also not just a minority leader, you're also a very public health-minded leader in the General Assembly. What kinds of conversations are you having around these budgets? I mean, are there like do you is there any kind of bipartisan spirit for building up this infrastructure, or do you feel kind of that your party is sitting alone in these conversations? Are you finding partners on certain issues? Well, I think there have always been partners on certain issues, and it does become very issue-specific. The question is, you know, always with the budget. A budget really shows what is a state's priority and what are leaders' priorities, because we put money where we have the priority 
to deal with the issue. Um, But it's also a recognition of what are the root causes of issues. And I will say that that's where there is much more work that needs to be done, particularly with members of the General Assembly who are ultimately making the decisions about the budget. And it's understanding that, you know, many of these social determinants of health, racism, that those things have more impact on health outcomes and many of these issues that we want to tackle, addiction, infant mortality, et cetera, that those social determinants have a much bigger impact than even sometimes uh, the actual provision of health treatments and services. Right, yeah. And that is, um, it, it. I don't think we're fully there yet with the complete understanding of how important having access to good housing, having access to adequate transportation, uh, good education, good economic opportunities, how critically important that can be for determining the long-term health of our people. And also bang for your buck. I mean, from a budgetary process perspective. It's much less expensive to do the upfront investments in those things than to deal with the consequences later on. The problem that we have is that we work in two-year budget cycles in the General Assembly. And people are only in those positions for maybe eight years total because of term limits. So the types of investments that you need to make in housing and transportation, you may not start to see the outcomes for those investments for 5, 10, 15 years. If you're only thinking in two-year budget terms, that's really difficult to do. Yeah, political time and policy time don't always align. Correct. You know, and, and pu- building a real public health infrastructure is a long-term investment. But that's right. Getting elected is not. That's right. So as we think about things like we'd like to fund in this state, and when you think about those priorities, you know, I've talked to public health leaders around the state who really have told me, and a number of people, that they would love to do a comprehensive study of how did we do? You know, I'm a New Yorker, so the old Ed Koch question, how am I doing, right? A very basic political question. It seems like there isn't a lot of interest in the leadership, um, and maybe it's coming from the governor's office. I don't really know. Um, you know, in, in really sitting down and looking at how we did in those early months and through 2021, and taking stock of how did Ohio do and how are we doing, keeping in mind that this is still a, uh, a kind of a moving target. Um, is that something you'd like to see happen? And what do you think would have to happen? to be open to that idea of really looking at how we are. I also just want to mention, I mean, it's my understanding that in 2014, after the Ebola crisis, we did go through this process. This is a basic, evaluation is a basic piece of public health. So tell me where you feel, where you fall on that. Is that something you'd like to see happen? Well, it is absolutely something that I would like to see happen. I think it's something that it will be incredibly valuable to us. You know, I think the hesitation that we have seen in this space really probably goes back to we know that there were failures. Um, We also know that there were successes. But, you know, what are the perhaps, you know, some of the individuals making these decisions, what are the political implications of talking about those failures? But to me, you know, it's uh, it's critical that we evaluate so that we learn and we do better for the future. 
And, you know, I do see that we had some areas of success. You know, I think about, for example, how we regionalize the response of hospitals. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was hugely innovative and long overdue. And that crisis forced us to take some real steps forward to make that happen and connect those hospital systems with our public health system, which was huge. That's a success. But certainly there were also failures and things that we absolutely, you know, now looking back for me, I look back and think we could have done that much better. Um, But we don't know that until we take a comprehensive look and we study it and evaluate it. And, you know, listen, the General Assembly is very good at establishing study commissions. We do it all the time. In fact, we do it so much. uh, Many times we study and study and study issues and never actually move forward with action on issues. So it's not that we aren't capable or we haven't done this in the past. But I think that there is some fear of what will come out of that and the criticism that will come out of that. But, you know, I think good leadership demands that we open ourselves up to criticism and learning so that we do better because this will not be our last public health crisis. Whether it's an infectious disease, whether it's an environmental crisis that we have, a natural disaster, whatever, it most certainly will not be our last public health crisis. And we have a lot of work to do to rebuild and make sure that our system is as efficient as possible so that we can respond quickly and save lives. And we talk in the state, maybe not enough, but certainly people I know talk quite a bit about the lack of democratic responsiveness that we have in in our electoral system and just this real fear about where democracy is in the state in general. You talk to a lot of people, you talk to constituents, and you also you're involved as a leader. Uh, I wonder if, if you can share a little bit about what, you know, were you surprised by this response that we've had and, and sort of the politicization of public health? Was it something you maybe had a, a an inkling about and saw? And, you know, I'm just, I want to get your sense of um, your own lessons learned and also specifically about leadership. I mean, like, what what have you learned about leadership during these kinds of these kinds of difficult moments? Well, was I surprised? No. I mean, I do come with a public health background. I've spent a lot of time studying the history of public health. And and we know that pandemics create a lot of distrust. They are destabilizing. Uh, In fact, you know, pandemics are national security crises for that very reason. And we've seen that play out in multiple countries. Uh, who have had to deal with um, outbreaks and, and pandemics. So I'm, I wasn't totally surprised. I was certainly disappointed at how political the response became and certainly very disappointed and disheartened to see that there were individuals in leadership positions who you know, could have, I think, used their leadership for good and to rebuild trust, saw it as an opportunity in a way that I don't think was helpful and ultimately we know caused people to die. I mean, we know now based on some recent data that we have that the excess deaths that we had here in the state of Ohio are some of the highest in the country. And a lot of that was because of 
to me, a lack of leadership and a lack of courage from individuals who personally, when you would have conversations with them, they knew better, but they didn't have the courage to use their position of leadership to help to convey trust and accurate information. And um, so, you know, I think your original question was, was I surprised? No, I wasn't surprised, but still disappointed in what I saw. But what I've learned from this for me is that you do have to have courage in leadership. If you're in a position of leadership, you have an obligation because that lack of courage could ultimately cost lives. I mean, we want our elected representatives to be responsive to, you know, just how the people feel about issues. But part of leadership is also kind of delivering hard truths Correct. a bit. So you talk to a lot of folks. Have, have you had, I mean, what have you learned about the conversations you've had with constituents who may have fallen into some of the misinformation or, you know, may not be thinking about the issue in an evidence-based way? Have you learned, have you had to have some of those conversations where you say, listen, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I feel your, your pain or whatever, but um, I have to tell you, you know, that that you're not you're not looking at this correctly. And is that part of what your job has been too? I, certainly, I have constituents who are all over the spectrum on you know whether or not they think the response was appropriate, not appropriate. You know where they are and their belief in the science, and um, you know I, I've heard everything at this point, uh, and certainly sitting on the committees that heard most of the legislation and the testimony in this space. But, you know, for me, it this really comes down to we can share facts, and facts are helpful, but we know from the science of how people change their minds on issues, how they perceive issues, really fundamentally, it comes down to, are you a trusted source of information? Do they trust you? Do they trust you as a leader? Even when you disagree. That's correct. Even when you disagree. And that is, I think, you know, something that you have to be very intentional about building that trust. And that takes time. Um, so, you know, in terms of the conversations, I think many of them and, you know, the ability to change minds always comes down to, are you trusted? Do you share values? Can you convey those same values uh, to your constituents? Yeah. My last question, you know, we're on the cusp of an election. It feels like we always are, but we really are. We're talking in October here. Um, and while I try to avoid turning public health issues into straight up partisan questions, I do want to ask you, you know, what are the stakes of something like the upcoming election or more generally, what are the stakes of leadership changes that are possible when you think about what the next group of leaders that we will elect will face? I mean, I guess I think in terms of sort of challenges, but also opportunities we might have in 2023 to get a few things right that maybe we've been missing. How do you think about that sort of like opportunity for a changing of the guard to replenish our thinking about something like public health in Ohio? Well, without a doubt, elections matter in terms of health. You cannot, a lot of people want to separate the two, healthcare and politics. 
but unfortunately, they're not separated. I mean, we've seen this over and over again, you know, our ability to get things through like the Affordable Care Act and our ability to maintain Medicaid expansion here in the state of Ohio. All of that is because you had political leaders really on both sides of the aisle, who are willing to step forward and put aside ideological partisan fights and focus on how do we solve issues for the people and do what's best um, for the people that we represent. And I think, unfortunately, where we are right now, particularly in state politics here in the state of Ohio, because of gerrymandering and because we have not gotten where we needed to be with the fair districts, we're voting on some unconstitutional maps yeah. this election cycle for both legislative and, co- and congressional districts, is that we have elected leaders who s- sometimes or many times sit on the extreme ends of where the vast majority of people really are, which is in the middle. And these do devolve into partisan ideological fights rather than focusing on, okay, how can we solve problems and how can we get things done, particularly in the healthcare space and the public health space. So these elections are always consequential. They are particularly consequential this election season uh, in this cycle in November because, you know, to me, part of us getting back to that having people who are focused on solving the real issues is you have to restore some balance, whether that's through the legislature, whether that's through, you know, the Supreme Court races and having a check on um, the hyperpartisanship that we see coming out of the legislature, whether it's the statewide elected offices, we need to have balance there. Yeah. And, and I will just say, we're talking here about health and healthcare and public health, but you've been a real no pun intended, leader on the issue of just redistricting and really thinking about the democratic fabric of our state, which like aside from any specific policy issue, that's enduring stuff, right? That's the stuff that will allow us to do any number of good things for our state. Well, it really is the underpinning of whether or not voters actually have a voice with their elected leaders. If you have districts that are not fair, not balanced, don't actually represent where the state is, then you end up with politicians, elected leaders who are unaccountable to their voters. And that is a terrible thing for democracy. And we see more extreme legislation coming out of the state house that is not at all aligned with where Ohioans are on the vast majority of issues, many of which impact health. We talk about gun violence. If we talk about the issue of reproductive rights, environmental, uh, how we deal with energy policy in this state, this state, all of those things impact the health of Ohioans. And if we have extreme policies that are not aligned with number one, where Ohioans are, but number two, what can actually improve their outcomes in health? That's not a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation about better days ahead and also learning some lessons from where we've been. Uh, Leader Allison Russo, I want to thank you for taking some time to be on the show and for visiting us again. Thank you. It's great to be here again. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. Special thanks go out to Mindy Bauman and Leader Russo's office for helping me to make this episode possible. 
To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and to check out an archive of past episodes, including episodes that are nice counterparts to today's conversation, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. Please be in touch with us if you have ideas for guests, topics, or ways we can improve the show. In the meantime, we wish you well and thanks for listening.